So we're in our second, um, second week of our summer series that's in the Psalms. So last week we looked at Psalm 1, which is a meditation on meditation. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And this week we're looking at Psalm 2, which fits well with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man, right? And then Psalm 2 ends with, all those who are blessed who do this. It kind of bookends itself. These together form an inclusio that are the introduction to the Psalms. We see the Lord's instruction in one and then the Lord's sovereignty in two. And we'll see how these will play out throughout as we go through the Psalms. And we want to remember that these are primarily songs. They're meant to be sung together as God's people. And so um, different Psalms are suited to different occasions. Just like um, we choose different songs each week that fit the themes of the church calendar or fit the themes of the passage that we're preaching. You've heard about God's kingship a lot today, right? Um, But that's how it was with the Psalms too. You would pick these to fit. And originally Psalm 2 has in mind um, people rebelling against Israel. People rebelling against the Davidic king. And now we see it as those who are opposed opposed to God's people and opposed to Christ. So that's kind of where it fits. And so the primary function of this psalm is to give us confidence as God's people that though the world opposes God and his people, we are safe if we take refuge in Christ because he is the sovereign king who rules all things. Right? It gives us confidence to trust in our king. We have nothing to be afraid of. It's kind of the thrust of what this is about. But it doesn't only do that. It also encourages us to look at our own hearts, to look at our own lives as individuals and then as God's people, too, to see um, whether we're living the way God's people ought, to bring them more under the rule and reign of Christ. And so as we look at this song, it divides up really nicely into four stanzas. And to see those three verses each, and a different person speaks in each of them. And we're just going to walk through these stanzas together and see how it unfolds. And so first, we'll see the earthly rebellion. Second, the heavenly reality. Third, the king's reign. And fourth, the right response. You got your alliteration there. Sorry, it was four points and not three. It was the psalm's fault, not mine. First, we see the earthly rebellion. And this one is going to be about thrice as long. Yes, I said thrice. Um, as long as the others, because it kind of sets the foundation for all of this. So in 20 minutes, when we move on to point two, don't sweat it. We'll be all right. We'll get there. All right. So let's jump into this first stanza. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed So right from the the beginning, we see that it's meant to relieve our fears and doubts. Verse 1 begins with the rhetorical question. Why do they rage and why do they plot? It's in vain. It's vanity. It won't ultimately, ultimately amount to anything. Doesn't mean we don't experience the threat, right? We just heard Psalm 44. That's reality. But ultimately, it won't amount to anything. It's a vanity. So what are these people doing? The kings and rulers. It says they're going against the Lord and against his anointed. 
Anointed here is the Hebrew word for Messiah. It's translated into Greek. It's where we get Christ. Um, so that's, he's referring to the king here as his anointed one. Anointed to be God's representative to rule his people according to God's reign. So the anointing sets him apart. That's why when King, David's, or King Saul's trying to kill David, David cuts off the corner of his robe. Um, David's convicted. It strikes his heart that he did that. And he tells his men who are trying to tell him he should kill Saul, he cut off the robe and is convicted and says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand out against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So it's the person that God has set apart for this special role. It started with King Saul, but then it really took root with David, right? The man after God's own heart. But David and all of his descendants fail, right? They don't live up to the ideal of what's called for. They ruled in ways that weren't consistent with God's character to the point that they end up being exiled from the land, right? What God had promised them, they're removed from it as consequence for their sin. But what do we see with the prophets? When things are going terribly, even in exile, they're like, you go through like two chapters of judgment. We did this in Jeremiah and stuff. You go through like two chapters. It's terrible. And then like a verse at the end that mentions the Davidic line. Right? Just these little slivers of hope. So as time goes on, this idea of the anointed one goes from being just merely David and his sons to this ultimate king, which the New Testament then tells us is Jesus Christ, the son of David. Great David's greater son. That's why we call him the Christ. It's not his last name. It's a title. Messiah, the anointed one. And in Acts 4, this is applied directly to Jesus, whom God anointed. So it tells us that he's been anointed, and Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, gathered together against him. That's how Acts uses this. It applies those groups of people as these kings and these rulers, saying they've done this. And now they're doing it to us as well. It's kind of the idea from the disciples there in Acts 4. So as God's people are originally singing this song, they're seeing others rebel against God. They're seeing people rebel against their king. They're facing these threats. Other nations are trying to conquer them, to kill them. And so you can imagine this potential for fear. But I don't think we really have to imagine it. We see it all around us. The world is opposed to God and his people. Shouldn't be a secret. It goes back to Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, right after the first sin, when God curses the serpent. He says that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between God's people and the world. The world will hate God and will hate his people. So the first and most primary use of this song is to encourage us that the world is opposed to us because it's opposed to God and Christ. But ultimately, their opposition is in vain. It's vanity. It helps us to ask, what are we afraid of? What fear do we have that might overwhelm us? I mean, Dan talked about watching the news earlier. I'm one that leans more on the side of turn it off, right? <laughs> but that's the thing. We're afraid. We have to stand and fight. More than just our country in general, I hear it from Christians. Our country is going to collapse because it's rejected God. If that happens, we're in trouble. The morality and what's acceptable these days is completely contrary to the Bible. They're winning. 
over and over and over again. What are we going to do? How can we fix it? How can we make it right? And if we have to look at it like that, why wouldn't we freak out? Right? We'll get there. But remember verse 1, it's in vain. You have that hope. But the reality is that the problem isn't just out there. It's not just what we look at, what's affecting us from the outside, but it's actually in here. It's in our own hearts. We're worried because that's out of our control, and it's supposed to be. That's okay. It's actually in us as well. As long as we look at it only as external, we don't have to deal with ourselves. It's the problem, not us. And so we're okay. But it's not just out there. So what do the rulers actually say? It's verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we read that, and it kind of sounds like prisoners in chains, right? But that's not actually the picture here. The language is yoke and the straps that go with it. In the Greek translation, the word for cords there is yoke, the same as Jesus uses when he says that. And what gets yoked? Like if we look at the imagery, it's poetry, so you have to consider images as you're looking through this. What's the imagery there? Someone actually, you yoke your cattle. Right? You yoke what belongs to you. And so what they're saying isn't, we're going to bust out of this prison and get free. What they're saying is, you don't own me. You're not the boss of me. You're not my king. That's what they're saying. And we have the same tendency in us. We want to be in charge. We want to call the shots. We often won't admit it, though. We say we love Jesus and we'll obey him no matter what. Right? But if we're honest... We still lie or maybe manipulate the truth, are selective in what we say to help us achieve our own ends, to help us get what we really want. Or if pressed, we'll say that it's not obedience that really matters. We're saved by grace after all. That's true. There's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation in any way. But we can't have Jesus as our Savior if we don't have Jesus as our Lord. Right? That's not who Jesus is. He's the King. Whether we like it or not, you can't pick and choose parts of him. He's not a buffet. He's a person. Right? So you either get all of him or you get none of him. So if you're taking him only as your Savior and not as your Lord, then I would question whether you're taking him at all. Another thing we'll do is we'll condition our obedience. We're more like Ryan Howard from The Office. You're welcome. He says, I want leadership. I want you to lead me when I'm in the mood to be led. Right? We'll obey in the things we want to do anyway. But as soon as he contradicts me, who wins? If we only obey in the things that we wanted to do, um, we're not really obeying. We're just doing what we want. We actually won't know if we're obeying him until what he says goes against what we want. When we actually have to say, you're the king and not me. And yes, this sounds all my way or the highway. Right? Do what I say. Satiate my desires. And you'd be right if God wasn't good. <laughs> That's where it all hinges. 
That's where it all turns. If he wasn't good, he'd be a tyrant. And it's hard for us to really grasp that he is good because we've never seen it before. Like, we agree with Lord Acton. He says, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? It's why our Constitution has three branches of government, separation of powers, checks and balances, because we don't trust people. But do you know what's better than a democratic republic that follows our Constitution? Being under the reign of a good king. And spoiler alert, um, in heaven, we won't have the Constitution or the branches of government. We will have a king. And we're not totally opposed to it if we're honest. Right? We have it in the stories that we like. There's still these hints of it. We're glad when Aragorn returns as king. We don't have a problem with King Arthur. It's baked into our very being. It's just that because of our sin, we want to be the king. And because of others' sin, we don't trust them to reign over us. So we try to break God's yoke and reject him, not believing the truth. But it's actually good. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Same language, like I said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's anointed is no tyrant. He is gentle and lowly. He is humble and compassionate. He is pure, unvarnished love. He is good. And what we view as restraints are actually for our good. It's really part of my story. I grew up, I've always believed in God. I've always believed in Jesus. Uh, But the issue was that I didn't think he was good. I thought he was demanding and withholding. Following him meant keeping this list of rules. Or more appropriately, not doing a lot of things. Pretty much anything that sounded fun, really. It was about obedience. Just pure, blind obedience. Just do it. But why couldn't I enjoy this life? Why couldn't I do the things that my friends were doing? So I did. And you've probably heard Dan and me ask the question before, how's that going for you? Right? Now, that's not to say Christianity is utilitarian. It's not. I'm not a Christian because Christianity works. I'm a Christian because Christ died for me and rose again. But often they do line up. Not always, but often they do. For me, it wasn't going well. Right? Years of emptiness and depression... The irony, at least in my own life, and I guess some of you can relate to this, is that I want to enjoy life, and yet I'm digging this deeper and deeper hole of emptiness and despair. Literally making it worse, going in the opposite direction of what I'm after. But by God's grace, he gave me this wake-up call when I was in college, kind of allowed the veil to be pulled back a little bit to see where my life was leading if I'm in charge. And by his spirit, he flipped the switch in me where he gave me eyes to see, say, oh, you're not withholding. You actually do know better than me. I know it's crazy, 
right? Someone could know better than me. But he does. His commands are good for me. That he is actually good. Right? And I still doubt it. <laughs> I still want to go my own way. He's slowly working in me. Slowly changing me. Proving himself over and over. Right? But that rebellion's real. This desire to cast off his kingship in our own hearts. The world and even our own hearts plot and plan and try to cast off his rule. Is God worried about that? Let's look at the second stanza where we see the heavenly reality. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Short answer, uh, no, he's not worried. Now he laughs. He mocks. It's not an ounce of fear. He's not worried his plans will be spoiled. Right? It's more like Superman or pretty much any superhero movie you watch, you know, and the bad guys all come together and they've got the rocket launchers and all the machine guns and they shoot at him and he just stands there and takes it, you know, and then they run out of all the ammo and then he just beats them all up. Right? Like, what's that going to do? Those bullets don't do anything to Superman. He's not worried. He's laughing about it. It's kind of ridiculous. It's more like it's, it's cute that they think they can do that. Bless their hearts. You know. But he won't let that go on forever. It says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. For some of you, again, this conjures up this image of a reactive, angry, bully God, especially this God of the Old Testament. He's just throwing his hissy fit. Right? He mocks people and then says, I'll destroy you. We have to remember the situation and who the psalm is primarily for. God's people are being attacked. The question and concern at this point in using especially this poetic language isn't whether God loves his enemies. Scripture talks about that elsewhere. Look at Romans 5 if you want. But whether or not God will take care of his people. Whether he'll protect them. And even the language of wrath I think is helpful. We sometimes mistakenly talk about wrath as an attribute of God. That it's who he is in and of himself. That it's who he is in his essence. But I think we're making a mistake if we do that. Because it's not. It's a reaction to sin. If there were no sin, there would be no wrath. Wrath doesn't stand on its own. It only flows from the love of God. When what God loves is threatened and betrayed, that's when we see God's wrath. God loves his people. And those who oppose them, who seek to destroy them, will face his wrath. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You can be the calmest, kindest, meekest person. But what happens when one of your children's threatened? Mama bear comes out, right? And rightfully so. It should. If your kids are there, they see this side and they're like... I'm glad they love me. You know? God's wrath is kindled. 
He's going to terrify them in his fury. So what does he do? We might expect lightning bolts, right? Just strike him down. Nope, he says, as for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. I'm not worried about it. I'm delegating authority to my king who's going to take care of it for me. He will. So we've seen that the earthly rebellion against God and his anointed, and we've seen the heavenly reality of a God who is not concerned in the slightest, but has set his king in Jerusalem to take care of it. Now the king speaks. So we've had the rebellious ones, then God in heaven speaks, and now the king speaks. Look with me at verse 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What the king says is he quotes back what God said to him, specifically at his coronation. When he became king, that's what the word son here means. You're in the verse. You're my son, I have begotten you. And we see this in the New Testament too. There are two ideas of son, um, like lineage, parent, child, son, but then son also as king. And that's more what's in view here. In the Old Testament, Israel's referred to as God's son, but then especially the Davidic king as the head and representative of the people is referred to as God's son. You see this in 2 Samuel 7, when God makes the covenant with David that his throne and kingdom will be established forever. He says of David's heir, he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So this should, as they're singing, this should be an encouragement to the Davidic king to live as God's son. Right? To embody God's reign. But we know that every Davidic king failed. Which makes us look for the better one to come. The New Testament, again, applies to Jesus. And Paul refers to verse 7 here twice in the New Testament. In Acts 13, he quotes it and clearly refers to it in the opening greeting in Romans, saying that it is in Jesus' resurrection that he is crowned king. The royal son, great David's greater son. The nations are becoming his heritage. The ends of the earth, his possession. That's what we've been talking about in Acts that we just finished. It's going out to the ends of the earth. It's expanding. We see it too, just in the Great Commission, we see a perfect example of this. After his resurrection, before he's ascending into heaven, what does he tell him? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. He's reigning right now. He has all authority. People are still rebelling against him, but he's not worried about it. And if we belong to him, we don't need to be either. Paul said that it's in his his resurrection that he's crowned king. If we are in Christ, if he really rose from the dead, then everything will be okay. It doesn't mean that this life will be easy. It doesn't mean that it won't hurt. In fact, the Bible tells us that we will suffer. We just heard Psalm 44. You can read the next psalm in the Psalter. David's suffering. He's being persecuted. It doesn't make things easy. If people tell you the Christian life just makes it easy, they're lying to you.
But it, does, it doesn't mean that as the morality shifts in our culture that we need to be afraid or that it won't even continue to slide, that it's going to halt, right? We don't have to worry about that either. God's not threatened. If Jesus is alive, sin and death have been defeated. It will all be okay. Even if the worst case scenario happens, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then it will be okay. Everything will be made right. We have nothing to fear. It's even what we see in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This verse is quoted three times in Revelation. His enemies, those who persist in their rebellion, who reject Christ as king, who are opposed to him and his people, will not be allowed to continue it. We often bristle at things like this. But if you know injustice, if you know oppression, then you rejoice when justice comes. And when Christ returns, he will bring justice. And his reign will be fully realized over all the earth. His enemies will be shattered and they will not be restored. God's people will be at perfect peace under the reign of the righteous king. He has risen from the dead. We have nothing to fear. So we've seen the earthly rebellion, the heavenly reality, the king's reign. So then what's the right response? It's in verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Even in the midst of their rebellion, they're offered grace. They're warned. They're encouraged to repent, to turn, to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling. I know we've said this before, but again, it doesn't mean being scared of him. It's right? not what we're talking about. Otherwise, rejoicing doesn't make sense. Fear of the Lord doesn't make us afraid, so we want to flee from him. It draws us to him. Michael Reeves puts it this way. He says, true fear of God is true love for God defined. The biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of love toward God that is fitting. It shows us that God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. To encounter the living God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He is not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly. Seeing clearly the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. Or put another way, to rejoice with trembling. Know his goodness and love. Know his beauty. Instead of casting off his yoke, take it upon yourself. For it's easy and light. Kiss the son. That's to pay homage to him. To submit to him as they would kiss the ring of the king. To say, you are my king. I belong to you. 
Don't rebel against him. He is gentle and lowly. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But slow does not mean it will never come. It will come, and it will come in a moment. He first came as a suffering servant to die for the sins of the world, to conquer sin and death through his resurrection. And he is coming again where he will set all things right to make everything sad come untrue for his people and to once and for all conquer all his and our enemies. Come to him, confessing the ways you have rejected his reign. Know him as your king and savior. That's the right response. Because you will face him. You'll either face his wrath or be found in him. Derek Kinner puts it this way. There is no refuge from him, only in him. We see this refuge in the Lord's tabor, table. The one who will reign forever. Most kings, you watch the movies, they sit high on the hill while they send their soldiers into battle. Right, to die so that he might have everything he wants. <laughs> but not this king. Not him. He came to, and died to save his subjects. That we might be heirs with him. That we might inherit the world with him. And he rose again and was declared the son of God with power. He's the king of the universe. And what does he give us to remember him? We don't have a big crown here to remind us of his power and authority. We have his broken body and his shed blood. We have a sign of humility that we might take refuge in him again and again in his loving sacrifice for sin. It's not weakness. It's strength. Who else could take on sin and death and defeat it? Our world's trying over and over. But everyone dies. But he took on death. And he defeated it in his resurrection. What else do we have to fear? Take refuge in him by faith. And he will defend you. You will be utterly safe. 